Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey y'all, it's Justin Richmond. To kick off our celebration of Women's History Month, we have the great singer and interpreter of song Judy Collins, who at 82 years old is in the midst of a creative shift in the way she works. Collins made her name during the 60s folk revival covering songs by other artists like Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, using her crisp soprano to transform them. But this year, for the first time in her career, she's released an album written entirely by herself. The album's called Spellbound, and the music feels right at home with some of the best in her catalog. Here's her song When I Was a Girl in Colorado, a sweet ode to the beautiful land of the West nestled between soft pedal steel. When I go back to the mountains Judy Collins has managed to retain the vibrancy in her voice that made her a commodity all those years ago in the East Village and has kept pushing the bounds of her creativity. She tells Bruce Hedlum on today's episode about her recent burst of activity, which not only includes this album, but five others. That's six in the last six years. They also discuss her working relationship with Leonard Cohen and how she actually lived the rugged life that peers like Dylan could only sing about. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Headlam with Judy Collins. Since you've turned 80, you've got your first number one and you're <laughs> touring and you've got this great new album everyone should hear, particularly the version of Send in the Clowns with just the piano. Oh, it is, yes. It is so yes. beautiful. Good. Good. So beautiful and such Good. a beautiful ending. 
to that album. This new album coming out in which I've written all the songs. I do a lot of writing anyway, but I wrote a lot of songs during the pandemic, polished up a bunch that had been hanging around waiting to be <laughs> looked mm-hmm. at <laughs> and taken seriously. And it was challenging, but I've sung some of those songs in concert now, and we'll see. I'm very happy with it. That's exciting. When you heard songs, how did you know, this is a song for me, I can make this work? Well, that's DNA, that's history, that's what you were like as a child, that's what you heard, that's how you were trained, that's how you learned how to learn all the songs of the Great American Songbook, Mm -hmm. which my father made our living with singing. Mm -hmm. Your your father was a musician, we should say. Yes, he was a wonderful singer, and then I was born in 39, and then he went on to have a radio career, which lasted 30 years. And we went from Seattle to L.A. to Denver. I was always able to see him perform and hear him perform and watch and learn how to do this thing, to have a career. Mm -hmm. And the secret being you show up on time in most cases (laughs) and uh, you do your work. No matter how much he drank, he always was happy in the morning and clear. And I don't know how he did it, but I learned to do something in my career and not have it be blown apart by my tendency to drink too much, which I really think I learned that from him. Your drinking, which was prodigious. Prodigious, yeah. Did it ever interfere? Were there mornings you couldn't perform or evenings you couldn't perform? Not until the last year, until 77. And then I was canceling right and left. I didn't drink on stage until that year either. And I always would keep the day clear, and then I would drink after the show. I knew by the time I was 19 that I had a real problem. Mm -hmm. But I never tried to quit. I mean, who would? You know, (laughs) as long as things were going well, you certainly didn't want to quit. (laughs) You also had a life in Colorado that was quite adventurous. You, I mean, you, you got married young. You had a child young, but you cooked at a sort of national park. You were always seemed to be climbing mountains and doing crazy things. You had the life that Bob Dylan and a lot of the other people in the village pretended to have. (laughs) (laughs) They all pretended to be these rough characters who've been riding the rails and cooking at lumber camps. And you're like, no, no, no. I did that. You didn't do any of that. Yeah, I did that. I had started singing for money in March of 1959. I sang at a little club called Michael's Pub in Boulder, and then I sang in in the mountains in Central City, and then I was hired to sing in Denver, and I started traveling back and forth from Boulder, which is where we lived, and my husband was in school, to Boulder, Boulder, Denver, Turnpike, dangerous road in those days. We got two offers. I got an offer of six weeks at the Gate of Horn to open for, at that point, it was Will Holt, and... My husband and I got an offer to, because a lot of our friends were park rangers. We knew the Longs Peak Ranger, whom we'd met in the mountains in 58. And we'd run the lodge, and I'd cooked on (laughs) wood stoves, and (laughs) we'd served the lunches to the hikers. And we got to know a whole community of people. I was traveling back and forth, of course, to sing. And uh, we were offered a fire watch. Meantime, I had broken my leg and had a surgery and was in a cast from my toes to my hip. 
This was in the spring of 60. They offered us the job, and we went up to Genesee Park, it's called. So we went up there for lunch one day, and our little boy was about a year and a half old, I think. And we had lunch, and we talked about it. What are we going to do? Are we going to move to Chicago so you can do the Gate of Horn? Or are we going to take the risk of your being in this cast and take a fire watch at Twin Sisters? Well, I was the breadwinner, so to speak, and I was not going to be very helpful if I could not move if there was a fire. Mm -hmm. And I, w I couldn't get on a horse, and I couldn't walk in this cast. That's when we decided to go to Chicago. And that was really that moment in my life where I knew that I was not going to live in Colorado and be part of the mountain scene for my adult life, but that I was going to go on this and do this career and do this thing that I do. Mm -hmm. When did you tell your husband that the cast was fake? <laughs> After I knocked him down the hill. Yeah. <laughs> What was it like for you when you started writing? The world changed and the sort of curators like Joan Baez, that went out of fashion and suddenly it was singer-songwriters. Did you feel pressure that you had to write to maintain your career? No, 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 I didn't. I mean, my career was finding other people's songs and doing them the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And my writing is completely part of my psyche. In other words, keeping me on the planet is why I write. And ever since I wrote Since You've Asked, I've never stopped writing songs. And what was Since You've Asked about? Well, the title, Since You've Asked, you know, Al Cooper said to me, why are you not writing songs? And then the answer is, since you've asked, mm -hmm. I'll show you. <laughs> so what was it like when you, you know, you performed all these incredible songs, you'd been on stage, and then suddenly you're sitting down saying, well, can I do this? Did you write at a piano? Yeah, I write everything at the piano. And that's where I grew up, at the mm -hmm. piano, so... It was a natural thing. It was always there. The whole question of noodling and finding a melody and a lyric did not occur to me until that moment. And uh, I wrote a bunch of songs that were pretty interesting at that beginning, Since You've Asked and My Father, I wrote that. I wrote Albatross in that first, uh, I wrote a song called Che, about Che Guevara. I wrote quite a number of songs, including eventually, while well, I took a few months off, a couple of years later and didn't tour so I could just write songs. And that was where I wrote Secret Gardens and a couple of others. So, But I always have something. I come up with something that I need to put on a record. So usually one of my songs will show up in a collection of other things, except, of course, if I'm doing a Sondheim album, yes, or an album of Lennon McCartney, which I've done, an album of Bob Dylan, which I've done, of those three, the Sondheim, the Lennon-McCartney, and the Dylan, doing so many of those songs, which surprised you the most when you did it? Or what had the most surprises for you when you actually sat down to mm. arrange the songs and to sing them? Well, I knew the Dylan songs very well, and I knew the Beatles songs very well. But I also, by the time I recorded the Sondheim, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I'd been working on it since, probably did it in 2016. So it was 15 years later. But I had really absorbed that group of songs that I loved and that I had to sing, and I had to sing them with an orchestra. And they were the most challenging. These are works which have great depth and great demands to make on the voice as well as on the heart. 
Jimmy Webb says to me, you know, you always record the most difficult of my songs, one of which I have struggled with, but I finally think I can sing it, uh, is his song about Gauguin, which is one of those mountain climbs of a song. But it prepared me uh, actually learning Gauguin and singing it in concerts and and kind of absorbing it and then recording, I think prepared me to do the Sondheim album. And it is really satisfying and really exciting material and really brings you up to the point where you have to say, wow, I don't know how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that's challenging about his songs? Is it the leaps? Is it the rhythm? Is there just something about singing them that makes them difficult? They're off in some other realm that is not customary in songs from the great American songbook, most of which have been taken out of Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. You don't sing along with Sondheim when you walk out of the theater, pretty much. You are given an architecture that is unusual, surprising, very moving, intellectually challenging, and at the same time melodic. He holds the papers. He has signed off on something that other people cannot really copy, I don't think. Do you think you have a talent for making them accessible to your audience? I hope so. And that's really the point. I do think that my ability to clarify and to articulate, to be clear and to phrase, and that's what you have to do with those songs. You must phrase them so that they are understandable to the listener and that you use that melody to carry you through to your audience so that they get it and that they are as excited about the song when it comes to an end as you are. I'm wondering if some of that for you comes from your early career, but it was very much traditional folk music, Irish, Appalachian. Oh, yes, yes, That was really the stuff you learned and, and the stuff you first recorded. Absolutely. But when you perform it, it doesn't sound old-timey or nostalgic. No, you make them no. feel very contemporary. Yes. A song of yours that I love and seems almost like a folk song at times is My Father. Can you tell me about writing that? It was in April that I wrote it of 1968, and he died in May. It was a, just an easy access. It came very easily. You know, they don't all come so easily. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get you, though. It took me about 40 minutes to write since you've asked. And the same thing was true as my father. But then in between, you have these months and months of struggling with a song. But they hook you by getting you to be able to write to my mm -hmm. father. And since you've asked, I knew he was sick. In 1967, at Christmas, I had been, for the first time, I'd been making some money. And so I gave my parents a trip to Hawaii as a present. And when they got there, he got sick. And he got sick there in the hospital. And then he came back. And for months, they didn't know what was the matter with him. But I knew he was in the hospital. And so the song came very easily to me. But he never heard it, which no. is the sad part of it. I called an old friend, Tom Glazer, and I sang it to Tom on the phone. I would have done that with my father, I'm sure, but it's not something that probably a person who's on his way to dying would want to hear, mm -hmm. <laughs> necessarily. Mm -hmm. Because the opening of the song it describes your father promising you that you would live in France. Yeah. Is that something your father actually did? Well, it was in 68. It was that summer. I met Stephen four days after my father's death. And 
I was writing the song, and the first line was, my father always promised us that we would live in Spain. I couldn't rhyme it with rain <laughs> or pain, <laughs> so I had to change it to France. My fair lady killed that one for yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back after a quick break with more from Judy Collins. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snagajob is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with more from Bruce Hedlum and Judy Collins. Can you take me back to 64, where you were and how mm. the first town hall 
concert came about? Because it became a famous album of yours. It did become a famous album. And I signed my contract with Elector in 1961 on a handshake with Jack Holzman. And he became my champion. And I had opened for Theodore Bacall at Carnegie Hall, so I had sort of broken into the big stages in New York. But now I had a full tilt solo concert at Town Hall. And that was after my first three albums. And so Jack said, well, let's, we got to record this. That was a big deal in those days mm -hmm. because there was a big truck outside and a lot of people with a lot of reel-to-reel -reel tapes going on. I'd found Phil Oakes's song in the heat of the summer and a couple of Dylan songs, primarily The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, which I had heard him sing actually on the town hall stage in 1962, and Billy Ed Wheeler song, one of which, Cold Tattoo, I have sung consistently from then on. It's the best song about people who've been in a job that doesn't exist anymore that I know. So it was really interesting to go back and do that. We did this album in a virtual environment. So there was nobody in Town Hall when we recorded it in January. And I didn't actually know they were going to put it on a vinyl and a CD, but they did, which is good. It's good for me. It's good for my fans. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, would you have had a crowd there or not? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. We should mention that was your album of a couple of years ago, which became your first... <laughs> Number one album on the Billboard charts My in Bluegrass. Your first, album. yeah, and you were, I think, eighty when that happened. That's pretty good. Yeah. I got a call from Billboard, and they said, "Oh, you got your number one lifetime, and you're in the Bluegrass category." And I said, "That's fine. I'm very happy to know." But remember, I've had all those other numbers through yeah. the years. <laughs> Don't forget about those. <laughs> so your performances in that are—I mean, they're. It's beautiful, but particularly the Sondheim, because you, the album mm. finishes with it, and so it finishes with the line, maybe next year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and knowing it was done in the middle of the pandemic, yeah. uh, it's very moving. Yeah, it is. When I was listening to the album, and I listening to you sing Both Sides Now, which is not the easiest song to sing in the world, you sing it in the same key. <laughs> I know. I always sing it in the same key. A lot of the songs on that album on the 1964, are very high. And I could sing them, no problem. Okay, well, then we need to know your secret. Oh. Because how can you sing <laughs> songs like And Winter Sky and Ramblin' Boy and all these other great songs, you sing in the same key, which yeah. a lot of performers over the years have to lower it. So what do you do with your voice that allows you to do that? Well, today I sat down, practiced the piano, and sang. Did some exercises that I was taught by my teacher and... If there is a secret, it is what Max Margulies taught me, which is that everything is about clarity and phrasing. If you listen to a singer and you understand the words, it goes a long way to proving that they're singing well. If you don't, eh, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. And my whole purpose in life is to tell the stories so that they can be understood. I know some people who have, let's say, rugged voices. They're charming, but the real challenge is to keep telling the stories and telling them understandably. You mentioned Max Margolis. He was yes. your vocal coach? Yes. When did you start with him? I started with him in 1965. You know, I was a pianist, trained pianist. I sang in the choirs and the choruses. But when I got 
stretched out on the road after 61, when I began to make records and have to travel all over the world, I would lose my voice all the time. And so by 1965, it was clear that I had to do something about it. And I didn't know anybody in New York who would do that. I mean, my friends who were the folk music community, nobody was taking singing lessons, that's for sure. So I called Harry Belafonte and his somebody who worked with him said, oh, Harry says you have to talk to his guitarist, Ray Bogusloff. And you have to call Ray because Ray knows about these things. So I called Ray Bogusloff and... He said, well, there's only one person that would be worthwhile to work with, and his name is Max Margulies. So I wrote his phone number down. And so at the end of the summer, I was in my apartment on the Upper West Side, and uh, I picked up the piece of paper with the phone number on it, which I had kept, and I called this number, and uh, this man answered. And I said who I was, and I told him who had recommended him. And we talked for a little bit, and I said, I'd really like to come and see you and see if you can help me out with this problem. And he said, uh, what do you do? And I told him, and he said, oh, I, I'm not interested. You people are not serious. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, And I said, know. oh, trust me, I'm serious. Yeah. And I begged and pleaded. And finally, he said, all right, he said, uh, we'll spend a little time together. You can come and see me. And I said, well, that's wonderful, but where do you live? And he told me, and I walked out my front door on the eighth floor of 164 West 79th, and I turned right and walked past the elevator and rang his bell. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't didn't expect you quite so soon. No. Wow. That's how right on these two folks were, that obviously it was karmic. And it was meant, and then I studied with him for 32 years until he died. And the last thing he said to me at Roosevelt Hospital when he was dying was, don't worry, as long as you know that it's clarity and phrasing, you're going to be fine. How do you practice clarity and phrasing? Well, you think about clarity, about the words. You know, my husband will say to me, you've got to be clearer on that song. You know, it's a new song and you're not finding your way into it. It's not understandable to me. So that'll do it, you know, every time. (laughs) We'll be right back with more from Judy Collins after a quick break. Snag a Job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. 
In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with the rest of Bruce's conversation with Judy Collins. One of the things reading your autobiography that I found fascinating, you lived in the Upper West Side, but you were really part of the Greenwich Village scene and how quickly you got to know seemingly everybody. When you had trouble with your voice, you phoned Harry Belafonte. Yeah. What was it about the village at that point? I know there were a lot of talented people there, but everybody seemed to intersect so many times. Was it a small community? Was it that everybody was drinking together? Or what was it that made it so so connected? You know, when you think of the village, it's a very small area, physical area. It's only a few blocks. You would think of it as this huge place. 
And yes, we drank together. It was very much a social club. But when I got to the village, it was 1961. And there was a kind of a word of mouth around the whole country. The people who ran the clubs would say to another person who ran a club in Chicago, maybe, she sold tickets. And they would hire me. I was there for six weeks at a time or sometimes a month and a half, two months. In that way, the venues got to know that you were doing business. So they would hire you. And I went to New York for the first time since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I went to Greenwich Village and I was the opener. I was the headliner at Gertie's Folk City in April of 1961. Dylan had been, when he was called Robert Zimmerman, he had been in Denver, and he was hanging out there. He was homeless there. He was sleeping on the couches of people who sang at the Exodus, which is a club that I sang in. I opened for Bob Gibson, who discovered Joan Baez, and then he called Jack Holzman and said, I think I've found your Joan Baez. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, It was a very tiny community, although we were stretched out very thin all over the country, but... Mm -hmm. That's really the way it was. The night that I opened as the headliner at Gertie's Folk City, everybody was there that I'd ever seen in the record stores. And Pete Seeger was there, and Peter Paul Numero was there, and Dave Van Ronk was there, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott was there, because my opener was a 13-year-old named Arlo Guthrie. So they had come to see what Woody's kid was going to do. And I've known Arlo for... 60 years. I was fascinated that this sort of dominant, slightly fearsome character for you when you went there was Joan Baez, wasn't Bob Dylan. He was still a kid. Joan was the one that everybody kind of gravitated to, and she seemed to be the the charismatic one. Oh, and she became a friend very early on, and her sister. I was embedded with this group of people, including people like Phil Oaks, who one day he knew that I was recording... In the heat of the summer. It was a wonderful song by him. And so he knew I was going to be recording that month in 64. And so he brought Eric Anderson over. I didn't know Eric at all. So he brought him over, and Eric brushed me aside, raced to the bedroom, sat down, finished writing the words to the song, and then came back and sang me Thirsty Boots. (laughs) And I said, oh, that's great. I'll record that tomorrow, too. So things like that were always happening. It just they seemed to happen so rapidly. That's right. Odetta's husband was my manager for a while. I don't oh, know okay. if you know that. I didn't know that. But you guys played a very particular role, which you don't find in pop music anymore. Before you started writing, you were almost like the curators of what was happening. You know, you sang Dylan songs before Dylan was popular, and he wouldn't have had a career without Right, Joan with, Baez, likely. And Odetta sang everybody's songs. Yeah. You became this interpreter of these songwriters people hadn't really yeah. heard of. And I want to just talk about a few of them yeah. um, because the list is so impressive. How did you first meet Ian and Sylvia? Well, they were recording for Electra, and they were charming. They had a place in the village. And, you know, Electra was a family, and Jack Holton and his wife, Nina, she used to do these big parties when you had a concert somewhere. And we'd meet everybody, or I'd go to hear Ian and Sylvia sing somewhere at some club, or I'd go hang out at the Gaslight and listen to Dave Van Ronk, and there would be Phil Oak singing and uh, Peter Lafarge. There was always something going on. I listened to the songs, and I would pluck out the ones that 
that I knew would work for me. Mm-hmm. And I went to see Dylan, and it must have been 62. It was very early on. It was town hall. And he sang Masters of War, and I just flipped out and also fare thee well. And I said, I have to record this guy. So then I came back to the east and moved straight into the village. That's where I knew I had to be. I just had to be there. In a way, everybody found a way to get into that recording studio with Elektra and make a record. Sometimes they didn't stay all that long. I did, but I did get to know people because of that, because that social life that kind of swirled around Nina and Jack Holzman. And how did you meet Leonard Cohen? Uh, you, you may be the only person not to have had an affair with Leonard Cohen. <laughs> yes, I'm the only person who didn't, yes. <laughs> the only girl in the room left standing. I had a couple of friends. Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner were friends of mine in those old days in the village. And I had a friend named Linda Gottlieb, and she and I and Mary Martin would have dinner. The, th- the four or five of us would have dinner. Mary Martin worked for Warner Brothers, and she was a Canadian. And she, we would go out to dinner, and she would talk about her life in Canada, and, and she would talk about this guy named Leonard. And she would say, Leonard's a wonderful poet, and we all love him. We all grew up in the same neighborhood. That's also where Nancy Bacall came into my life, too, a little after that. And she said, we're also worried about him because he's a brilliant person. He gets some books published, and we go to his little readings in Montreal, but we don't understand these poems at all. They're so obscure. (laughs) So this went on for a couple of years, in and out of various spots where we'd have dinner or lunch or whatever. Then in 66, she called me one day and she said, well, you'll be surprised, but he's writing songs and he wants to come to see you to record his songs. Now, by that time, of course, I had had the hand in a number of careers, many, many artists. I suppose it was known that if you could get me on a record on Electra because I was recording every year, it would be a good thing for your career. And I said to Leonard, you know, Mary told me that you write songs, and I'd love to hear some, if that's okay with you. And he said, okay, I'll come by the next day. So the next day he came by the apartment, and he said, uh, I can't sing, and I can't play the guitar, and I don't know if this is a song. And he sang me three songs. He sang me the Stranger song, which I've never recorded yet, but I will someday. And he sang me Dress Rehearsal Rag, which is the story of a rehearsal for a suicide, which I thought was great. And then he sang me Suzanne. Now, Michael got it right away with Suzanne. He said, oh, that's it. And I said, I'm not so sure. So it wasn't until a day or two later that it sunk in. That was when I called Jack. We had been working on... In My Life, which was my fifth album, fifth or sixth. And it was a huge departure from everything I'd ever done because, I no, there were no guitars, there was no Dylan, there was no Phil Oaks. It was songs from the Marat Saad, songs from the Pirate Jenny. It was a huge departure. And In My Life, a Beatles song. We should just back up. This was a famous... Theater production, theater production by, by Peter Brooks. Peter Brooks and the story of the Marquis de Sade, a fantastic production. And the music was not distinctly songs, so I took the whole soundtrack and I had them put it on a reel-to-reel for me, and then I edited it with my own razor to put the thing together so that it would make a complete kind of text as a song. Mm. And 
then we said, let's get Josh to do this. Let's get Josh Rifkin to orchestrate these things. Pirate Jenny, the music for the Marat Saad, In My Life, etc. And so we'd done all this material. We went to England, actually, to record so we could get the folks who sang for the Marat Saad recordings. And we were out there, you know, we were having a very good time. Nobody knew what we were doing, and nobody understood why we were doing what we were doing. And so we were very happy with it. But Jack said to me, it's missing something. And that was when Leonard came along. I called Jack a couple days later, and I said, I think I found the missing something. I had uh, Leonard play Suzanne for him, and he said, oh, that's it. That we're done. <laughs> wow. It's amazing to me at that point that you'd had five or six records by that mm-hmm. before you did In My Life. Mm-hmm. And they'd done okay, but you didn't have a breakout hit on any of them. You were touring a lot. Mm-mm. A musician today would not get six kicks yeah. at the can yeah. with well, a label. Well, they didn't have Jack Holzman on their side. Did you think that was it? Oh, yeah. He was a believer. You know, he said to me when... Bob Gibson had called him from Denver and said, I have found your Joan Baez. That was in 59. And Bob said, I think you have to come out here to Denver and hear her. And he did. But he didn't introduce himself to me. And two years later, he came to see me at Gertie's Folk City and said, you're ready to make a record. And years later, he said, I didn't know that he had come out to Denver. Mm -hmm. And then he called, after he saw me at at Gertie's, he called Bob Gibson and said, I have now found my Judy Collins. (laughs) (laughs) And he told me this maybe five years ago, I heard this story from him. He saves these little nuggets for me and tells me decades later. I was saying he hung on to that one for a long time. (laughs) I had no idea. I said, why didn't you introduce yourself? He said, because I heard you and I thought she's very good. But then he thought, I did not know if you were serious and I said, well, you could have asked me. I was always very serious. And he said, well, I didn't know that. But you see, he had a heart, also has integrity, and he knows that it takes time to build an artist. I do want to ask about two more songwriters that oh, yeah. you championed very early, Randy Newman. How did that song come to your attention? Somebody sent me, somebody from his camp sent me that song when I was on the verge of recording the In My Life album. He had recorded it, and I heard it. And I said, I'm putting this on the album. That's what made the decision in his mind that he was going to be a songwriter and not go the route of most of his relatives who wrote music for movies, Mm -hmm. as you know. That was what did it, was that I chose the song and I sang it. And, of course, it's a great... And the song is... Great. great. I I think it will rain today. I think it's going to rain today. It's going to rain today. Just an amazing song. So, But I didn't know him. Somebody brought the song to my producer, to Mark Abramson, and kind of threw it on his desk. And how did you first hear Joni Mitchell? Ah, Another one of those miraculous moments. I was in the village. I was hanging out, recording, traveling. And I became friendly with Al Cooper, who started Blood, Sweat, and Tears. In 67, I was passed out, I'm sure, one night. And it was about three in the morning, and I got this call from Al Cooper. And I said, why are you calling me? What is going on? Is something wrong? And he said, no, 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 no. I followed this girl home, and she was good-looking, and she said she was a songwriter. And so I figured I couldn't lose, so I followed her home. And when she got there, she started singing these songs, 
And I said to her, hold everything. I have to call Judy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so he called me. And I said, why are you calling me in the middle of the night? And then he said, I have a surprise for you. She does write songs. And you are going to love them. And then he put her on the phone. And she sang me both sides now. She sang that on the phone? Yeah. Did she play guitar when she was yeah, singing? Yeah, playing the guitar and singing into the phone with Al Cooper sitting next to her. And you thought, what? I thought, oh, my God, I'll be right over. <laughs> <laughs> and I took Jack with me the next day. And I said, this is it. And he said, you're right. And that was it. I did Michael from Mountains, too, which I don't sing in concerts, but it is a great song. And then you later did a couple other big songs of hers. I did Chelsea Morning. Chelsea Morning was a, was a hit for you. And then President Clinton and his wife said they named Chelsea Morning after listening to my version of the song. But that's a big song that I do. I love that that mm-hmm. song a lot. Did you maintain a relationship with her over the years? Not really. You know, we've grown apart and... We also live in different parts of the country, and she doesn't travel Mm -hmm. so much. I mean, she has had her her physical issues, but we have had some very nice times. Clive Davis got us together a couple of years ago. She was still in a wheelchair, but she came to the Grammy party that he has before the Grammys, and I sang both sides now with a wonderful band for Mm -hmm. her, and so that was very special. Okay, well, I'm so happy you could fit us in. Oh, because you may be the busiest person I know. (laughs) What a treat for me. I've loved every second of it. Thank you so much for coming down. Thanks to Judy Collins for taking a stroll down memory lane with Bruce. You can check out a playlist of all of our favorite Judy Collins songs and songs inspired by Judy Collins at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. For theme music by Kenny Beats, I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry and me. I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.